Good evening and welcome to Humanities 101. I'm Kendra Cowley. And I'm Lisa Prinz, and we are the coordinators of Humanities 101 or HUM. Along with our amazing volunteers and intern Morningstar Willier, we've been putting together weekly HUM classes here on CJSR. HUM is a free university course that usually meets in person at the U of A and off campus, but due to COVID-19, we are now meeting on air. You can always reach out for more information at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check out our website at hum101onair.ca where you'll find past episodes and materials that are mentioned in interviews and readings to keep us thinking. Last week, we met some amazing East African storytellers who shared stories with us including Chunga Otiende, all the way from Kenya. We learned about traditions and practices of storytelling in East Africa, as well as how stories could be used as tools to facilitate conversations around community needs and social change. If you missed the class, you could always listen to it online as well as other past classes. This week, we'll be thinking about stories a bit differently. We are going to stretch our storytelling beyond words and explore how images and our bodies tell stories. Last week, Jan Selman introduced us to how her and her team have used storytelling as a research methodology. We start today's class revisiting how storytelling is used in research to gain a richer understanding of people, their histories, their present, their future, and their communities. We'd like to welcome Zane Ham, who has used visuals to tell stories inside and outside the classroom, has explored photo voice and digital storytelling. My name is Zane Ham. I grew up in a small farming community in Saskatchewan, and that part of my life, the, the farm and the small town, is something that I also carry with me in all of my, in all of my work. So probably the most common thread in, in my work is my connection to community and my interest in building community, as well as uh, sharing stories and, and ways to, uh, I guess, entry points for people to tell their own story. So that dovetails nicely into the next question I have for you. As you know, this term, our theme is storytelling. And every week we're thinking about different ways of telling stories. We reached out to you because you have used image and thought about image as a method or an entrance points to storytelling. Could you speak to us about how you've used image as storytelling and as a means of research and exploration? I'd love to. <laughs> and uh, this is something I can talk about a lot and I, I feel really passionate about. Um, when my little son hears me talking about stories, he tells me and reflects back to me that this is the time when it feels like I'm most, I guess, most alive and most excited about uh, work that I'm doing and ways of, of connecting with, with people. So some of the ways that I've used story and that um, I've used it, I guess, as, a, as an entry point or as a, a starting point for conversations and, and learning more about, I guess, who's in the room or, or who's part of our community is, um, is using images or, or photos where they're not necessarily connected directly with someone's life. So it's safe to choose a picture that speaks to me or, or speaks to you and that you can use that as a prompt to be able to share something about your life or something that you've connected with. Uh, when you choose that image. Being able to use a visual prompt as a, a welcoming way to be able to share something about our lives and something that's meaningful to us. In my own exploration, I'm really interested in, in rural and urban communities. Growing up on a farm and, and moving into an urban setting, uh, I was really moved by some photo voice exhibits that I saw about life in Edmonton. And I also love the idea of putting cameras into people's own hands so that we can share you know, stories or images that, that speak to exactly where we are in that moment. I think about when you say to give people cameras in their hands for them to take pictures, knowing a bit about photo voice, I understand that that is for us to quite literally gain access or have a better understanding of their point of view, where they actually, what they actually see, things that impact or affect their day-to-day -day that we might not otherwise notice. In many ways, even from the level, so if you're working with a family, what each person chooses to share or chooses to capture 
in that moment that has meaning for them might look quite different. Uh, it also can speak to things like, well, in the environment or in a downtown or River Valley space, what's important to us that we want to preserve? And it's the things that are are important or that we worry about or that um, we'd like to be able to maybe zoom in on in in camera speak and then ask someone else to to witness it or to look at it with sensitivity alongside us and whether or not that's accompanied by words and sometimes there's you know six line stories that might go with an image or a caption that might go with an image and sometimes they're an image that stand you know, on their own. I think for me, some of the magic of having a camera in hand or being able to select, if the tech becomes a barrier, being able to select images is that there's a whole range that we can choose what's important to us and what we want to speak about or what, uh, you know, makes your heart beat faster in terms of really caring about it or wanting to protect it. And having that space to be able to speak about those things allows for a, a connecting point with someone else that doesn't just have to be about, you know, the words or the research, uh, maybe jargon in some ways. It makes it accessible and yet no less deep or rigorous or intellectual or, or challenging in the ways that we can dig deeper. Digital story and, and photo voice allow the person who's you know, telling or showing their world to be the author of that. So truth is, is, you know, really coming from their first person account, rather than me trying to, you know, tell the story about someone else. And so that's a lot of the, the power in the point of view or their perspective and being able to put that out there with others and, and share that or see their reaction to it or be able to have a deeper conversation about it, that part of the beauty of it as well. I would like to pick up a little bit on that. You mentioned earlier to sharing a photograph and having someone witness it or sharing um, that story. What happens there, do you think, to be able to have it received? So you get to be the knower of something and help somebody else understand. What happens there, do you think, that is unique to image that you might not find from a paper that someone authors or a story that someone authors? Hmm, such a great question. I think there's a few things that happen. One is that there's some risk and some challenge in releasing it and saying, I'm ready to either put this on the floor so that you can see it or hang it on the wall so that I can share that with a group. There's a risk in that, in being, I guess, vulnerable might be the word, or knowing that other people are going to take a piece of it and make it their own or hook a piece of their own story or their own path onto that. While it's a risk, there's also this opportunity to see it as an invitation to say, you know, do you see yourself in this or how do you see yourself differently? And we can talk about that as well. Or that might be a challenge, to, you know, to compare points of view or to, or to think about things in a different way. Uh, we can also think about what's excluded that as a photographer, someone who's who's sharing an image, we can edit out, we can frame in a way that actually leaves out vital pieces of information. And there's risk to that and also possibility and then have some really interesting generative conversation or uh, some serious debate about, uh, you know, what's included and, and around, you know, access or ability to see the bigger picture. There's lots of ways you can, you can extend that conversation. I like that you're talking about the editorialness or um, the subjectivity or like you being the subject of your own story and making those determinants about what you will share or what you're choosing to share from your position. Now, that also leans itself to a lot of criticism one might face doing this sort of work in a university setting or a setting that really values hard facts or statistics or numbers. I'm wondering if you could, uh, how you would respond to a challenge of that. In the research world, if we're thinking about quantitative versus qualitative uh, data, ideal for me would be a combination of evidence through numbers where we can see those patterns as well as the story and the nuance that go with them. So I think when the two go hand in hand, there is immense power to that. 
So if, for example, you're looking at rural youth out migration from a rural community into an urban, those numbers do matter. That young people or, you know, people who have left and are, are looking for work in a, in a larger centre or looking for their place, until you actually hear the stories of their experiences, those numbers are still just a number. It's harder to, to hook on and to connect. So ideally, I would see um, if, if both can live side by side. I think too that the power in story is is a trigger point and is a is an opportunity to dig down and ask more questions. I think too, I mean I've talked a lot about just these these moments, but I think if you think about it in terms of maybe the change or growth we want to see in the world now or or some of the research that we care about or the things we care about protecting in in our communities, I think if we can mobilize story or or listen more deeply to stories that there's places where real change or changing in perspectives can happen and maybe it's building you know a deeper understanding of a particular issue or a particular place um, but that is the kind of work that I want to do and that's how I want to live my life you know and so thinking about where are the spaces where people are already telling their stories and that maybe our job is to show up and listen or maybe our job is to, or maybe our role is to, is to seek them out, you know, or pay attention if someone starts speaking to you rather than, you know, that, that position of being the one who's, who's doing the inviting or the, or the setting the agenda kind of thing. So I think there's lots to, I think there's lots to think about. I love this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and being generous um, in your ideas and get outside those ideas and letting us have this conversation. And I want to thank you for that. I, uh, I loved it. And I, I really feel honored that I was invited to be a guest and I would love to hear stories from the listeners. Thank you, Zane. Zane reminds us to listen with all our senses and to be open to sharing of stories, not just as a storyteller, but also as a witness. Our next guest tells stories through body movement, and Poe is a movement artist who happens to also be a trained dancer. They discuss how movement is a creative tool available to all bodies, no matter how different they move, to help us tell and challenge stories about the world around us. And Poe talks to us about Black Joy, the power of art and the importance of movement. Hello, my name is Mpoe Mrale. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I'm Black, queer, non-binary. That is who I am. And I reign from Lubahomo, South Africa. I grew up there for 13 years. And after 13 years, my mom uh, moved to Treaty 6, Amiskwesiwaskaigal, uh, in Edmonton to pursue her PhD in nursing. And I came along with her. We spent a great five years here together. She finished up and it was time for us to go. I was in grade 12, so I finished and she was done her PhD program. I decided that I'm going to stay. So <laughs> so she left and I've been here since. I've always just kept dancing on the low. And it was after I'd completed my BA honors that I decided that, you know what, there's this really interesting program in Treaty 7, so McKinsey's or Calgary, as it's known, that I would love to pursue and take advantage of, like, if we're being really honest, dance is, as it exists, this is how I don't want it to be, but as it exists, is a very bodily, like, they monitor your body very closely. So I was like, okay, I'm still kind of at my peak body-wise, like, dance body-wise, so why not take advantage of that right now and pursue a professional dance career? So that's what I'm doing right now. Outside of dance, I can talk about what I do outside of dance. I'm an administrator for a theater company called Swallow Bicycle Theater. I am an avid podcast listener. So I listen to all the podcasts that are available on my app. And I am a professional napper. So <laughs> I've tried all the techniques that, <laughs> that involve napping and I can tell you all, everything about napping. So <laughs> right now, as I mentioned, I'm based in Wakinsis and, but I very much still regard Amiskwati Waskaigan as home 
along with the Bahamas, South Africa as whole. So yeah, that's me. So I'm wondering if there's a difference between dance and uh, movement. I've been trying to understand why it is that I like to present myself as a movement-based artist versus a dancer. And I think that dance just has this, what is it called when you're so, oh, association, just has this association with, oh, that's the thing that you do if you're trained. That's the thing that you do. You know, I can't possibly dance. Like I've heard so many people tell me they can't dance versus when you say movement, then everyone's like, okay, I'm on board a little. That sounds like something I can do. So I think movement is very rudimentary. I think that's the word. And that is my focus, like very focusing on like pedestrian kind of movement versus like, okay, so we're going to turn out our legs. We're going to kick our leg up high and then down. Like that does not tell me a story or anything, you know? So I've been focusing more on movement at its core versus like this layer that we add when we think about dance, which is like, oh, it has to be a trained thing kind of stuff. Could you tell us more about movement as art then? I think in order to make that connection, I first have to describe what art means for me. So uh, in my final year, I took this amazing course. It's a political theory course uh, with Dr. Fiona Nichol. And uh, one of the first things that we did was talk about what the purpose of art was. So there's so many philosophers who have philosophized what art is. And some of them mentioned that art is to affect. Some said it's to reflect, to question, to challenge, to transform. And I like what this philosopher named Herbert Marcuse mentioned, that art represents reality while accusing it. So if that is what art is, then how does movement fit into that? For me, I see movement doing this in various degrees. So I see affect being the most prominent. Affect for me is like a consequence of feeling. That's the impulse for movement. It's something that you're feeling and you're externalizing it in a way. All movement to me carries that definition of affect. Let's say Nutcracker, for example, that is a ballet that's always shown every year. If I'm gonna see it, I'm gonna be like, okay, that is very aesthetically beautiful. And like the affect is definitely there. Perhaps like it renders some memory of like, oh, this reminds me of Christmas time. With movement, there always, always is affect. However, I don't think. It necessarily, not all movement is challenging or transformative. And I think that is something that I wrestle a lot with. But I think that for it to be that, it all lies in the subject matter. So all movement can be a, a rise feelings. Like if I'm seeing you move a certain way, perhaps it can resonate with me. But yeah, when it comes to it being a challenging or like transformative thing, I think that's where subject matter matters the most. So as I mentioned with Nutcracker, I don't particularly find the subject matter very challenging or like it wouldn't necessarily get me out of the theaters ready to fight patriarchy, not at all. However, I have created several shows myself where subject matter, that's the place for me that actually starts, not necessarily even feeling or affect at all. It's always about subject matter and bringing that to life. One example of this could be um, the work that I'm constantly working on right now is on the subject matter of Black joy. So very rarely do we ever see Black bodies on stages, first of all, period. But when they're on stages, they're perhaps uh, nannies, or like the side chick, or playing a slave. So it's often in these very traumatic, stereotypical ways. Very rarely are we seeing just joyous Black people. So for example, that might cause reflection to some folks. That might cause a challenge. That's where I see the lack, for example, in movement, in movement-based art. It's when the subject matter does not get us revolting. And to be honest, 
it's like that across many art forms. What I love about movement is that it animates the concepts that we talk of, we talk about. It animates words, for example. I will talk about this when I talk about the various ways that I've told stories in the past. But it animates the concepts that we talk about, but not like acting would. I think that the, the unique thing about movement is that it does it in such an authentically you way than other art forms. So I think that's what's so unique about movement-based art is that it's a true reflection of you. Like, even if I was just copying Lisa all day, I could not possibly move like Lisa at all. And I think this is a reflection of reality. And this is what makes movement-based art so beautiful to me. And having this reminder in front of my face constantly every day, you are enough the way you are kind of thing is so, so important. Like Herbert McHugh's mentioned that art represents reality. Movement very much does that. However, that last part of while accusing it, not necessarily. It just depends on the subject matter. So that's how I'm, that's how I view movement as art. So I just, if I could pause though for yes. a second here. <clears throat> Joyous Black Bodies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, the project is called Black Joy. Yeah. Black Joy. Yeah. So what is the project? So Black Joy is a project you're working on. Yes. And um, so one of my favorite things to do is bring together artists to create art, like multidisciplinary art. So this is what this project aims to do that has visual art, spoken word, poetry, fashion, all the things. And at its core is a reflection of black joy because I am very tired of seeing us always traumatized in the media and on stages. So yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very exciting. You talk about ways that you could tell stories through your bodies. What are other stories you have found yourself narrating through your body? I'll start this with a, with a different entry. I will get to your question. One of my great friends, Brendan Wind, who's a spoken word poet, he was mentioning this in passing, and it just stuck with me forever. And what he was saying is that the body cannot lie. That has been something that I come back to a lot, not even just in creating art, but even just in life. The body always tells us what's happening in our lives. It always holds those memories around us and everything. I've relied on movement to tell my stories, and it's always come out very authentically. So um, one of my favorite times that I've uh, told a story through my body was, again, working with Brendan Wind. Uh, through this project of his called Alive. It was a performance that incorporated vocalists, musicians, him narrating, and uh, two dancers interpreting what was going on in the words. Are your movements crafted carefully beforehand? For example, this um, Alive production. I imagine they are for certain if you're dancing a formal dance with a true. Right. But if you're dancing in the context of um, that, like more of a movement piece, is it all crafted? Are all your movements crafted carefully? Do you know what I mean? I do. And I should have mentioned uh, this part before, talking about bringing words to life. This is how I think about movement. There's a concept. I internalize that concept by like putting interpretation or whatever in it. So that concept can be words by Brandon Wint. I interpret those and then what comes out as movement. So it goes from external to internal, but internal to external then. And I think I'm most myself when I move. So yeah, yeah. Does that answer what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So going beyond listening um, to stories Mm -hmm. and so that Mm. how it's your listening of the story that we are witnessing i guess right like it's yes. it's, gone, it's gone through you and then out again so exactly that. exactly and sometimes like there is no like there is no poem to base this on and that's where those grounding techniques come in right it's like okay let me take in where am i feeling tension in my body and then moving from that part kind of thing so it's big time listening to what is honestly being said within you 
and then moving from that standpoint. I'm wondering if you could share um, a bit of your journey as a storyteller. The culture that I'm a part of, it's that my people are called Babedi. Um, they're located in the northern region of South Africa. And oral stories is how I got my information. So we're very oral people. Not much is written. So every night, for example, uh, my mom would tell us stories, like very traditional-based stories. Um, when we visited my grandma, all the cousins would sit around at night, hear stories from my grandma and all that. That's how connection was built with my ancestors, with people that came before me, because these are stories that my mom also heard growing up as well, and my grandma as well. So that's how I, my lineage was passed down in a way. In those stories also, you can find places like locations. So I know then that my people have resided in this one location for many, many, many centuries and generations that, and I can map out the story of our people. When it comes to movement, for me, that is something that was always around me. So we always danced and you would sing while dancing. And uh, traditionally, all our dances were always in relation to the land, whether it's like to pray for rain, whether it is to celebrate the harvest. So I learned those traditional forms of dances. When it comes to um, the really, the ones that I do right now, I, I was the kid where if you were invited to my house, you better get ready to learn a choreo piece because... <laughs> And no one likes to play with me because they're like, you always are bossing us around. I'm like, well, <laughs> I have new steps to teach you now. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'd watch MTV and all these like music videos and just was, was so excited when friends came over because I would teach them all that I've learned. So that's how I grew up dancing, like the traditional forms, as well as these ones that I would put on my friends. I just saw it as like a fun thing to do for a very long time until around maybe five years ago when I started creating my own pieces and talking about the things that matter to me or wanting to unpack stuff that was resonating. So for example, uh, you find a lot of blackness in my pieces because that is a concept that I daily unpack and I don't think it would necessarily be something that I would be talking about if I was not on this land but if I was in a, in a context where I see black people around me every day black is the normalcy then I would probably be talking about something else in my life right and I'm packing a different part of me which is which is very interesting and something that I I very much want to do as well. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how I found my way into movement as storytelling. Can I ask you a personal question? Mm -hmm. If you were surrounded in a world in which people knew what Blackness meant every day, what story do you think you would be telling? Wow. I can't even fathom. Like, it's so far removed that I cannot even fathom what I would talk about. I'm sure there's so many, like, just a case in point in Alberta in general, the artists that I know who are white don't talk about whiteness. So they can talk about anything in the world. So I just can't fathom being in that position for me because it's something that I haven't been in before, so I can't imagine. But it makes me so excited. I just can't imagine what it, what it would be like. It's, it's just so freeing. Like I'll sing someone that I, I haven't necessarily felt freedom very many times, except maybe a handful of times in my life. And those times were while moving, interestingly. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine how exciting that would be to not necessarily, I love, listen, I love blackness so much. I love everything that comes about it, the depthness, the joy, the everything about it. And, and it must be so nice to not have to talk about 
about um, about race so often, you know? Yeah. So, wow. I can't imagine. Thank you, Mpoe. After Lisa's interview with Mpoe, we're both left excited thinking about how our bodies have abilities to tell stories in ways that we never thought possible. Just a reminder that you're listening to HUM 101, and we are Kendra Cowley and Lisa Prince. And you can tune into the show every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. here on CJSR 88.5 FM. If you have any questions or have a story you would like to share with us, you can reach us at 587-709-5472 or HUM 101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check out our website at hum101onair.ca. Next up, we have Morenica from Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Ribbon Rouge began as a one-off fundraising event and has grown into a grassroots organization that supports individuals from African, Caribbean, and Black communities that are impacted by HIV. We went into the interview thinking we would focus on a few of the Ribbon Rouge projects that have storytelling at the center, but as you are about to hear, we ended up spending as much time talking about listening as we did telling. Morenica talks about recognizing the need for Ribbon Rouge to dig deeper into their goals as a foundation to ensure that they were meeting the needs of the community they were committed to supporting. Through listening, we learn of how HIV is a symptom of deep rooted government and institutional racism, prejudice, and disregard of the complexity of individuals' experiences. Morenica introduces us to the term intersectionality. This term was originally coined in 1989 by a professor, lawyer, and critical race theorist named Kimberly Crenshaw as a way to illustrate the unique experiences of Black women as they use legal means to challenge active prejudice within employment. This term has become increasingly popular and visible in the mainstream and often controversial in the media. It is important that we remember and honor Crenshaw's work and the many Black women whose experiences and thinking informed that work. Hi, I'm Morenike Olaushebiko, and I'm the president and founder of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation, amongst many other things. That's why we invited you onto uh, our show or into our classroom, is because we're talking about storytelling this term. And Ribbon Rouge uses a lot of storytelling to tell a lot of different stories. I'm wondering if you could start by maybe sharing with us what Ribbon Rouge is and does. So the Ribbon Rouge Foundation is an organization that uses arts for social change, for positive social change. And we do this by uh, influencing education of health and social service providers, by using arts-based practices and culturally sensitive practices for health research. And then as a result, um, using our findings in research to see how we can shift policy and legislation and in just uh, even just community dialogue and how we bring each other how we come closer together and how we stitch our communities together and how we bridge across our differences because even that is important in our health and well-being and in being able to then shift systems around us um, and so over the years, we've evolved in our purpose because when we started, it was just a fun amateur fashion art music show to raise money. Um, and then it became about using the arts as activists to um, bring awareness uh, to people living with HIV here in Edmonton. And since then it's evolved to the version I described where it's a lot of different ways to use the arts for change. So whose stories or whose art um, is included in these conversations and in this change? Oh, wow. Okay, so I suppose in that evolution, it starts out with um, using story, storytelling to share about people living with HIV. And in the original versions of Ribbon Rouge, it was just, oh, we just put together a show. We had themes, but we didn't really have like um, personalized stories of people. But over the years, when, as we learned more about how HIV disproportionately affects people, we actually started to engage women um, living with HIV in Alberta 
And so we started to tell their stories. We would have them come and mentor these graphic designers. And then the graphic designers will listen to their stories and then try to recreate these stories visually. And we would have um, sex, former sex trade workers come into our shows and tell their stories while we were painting, for example. Or we would have a woman living with HIV write a poem, put her story in a poem, and then recite the poem at an event. And so we just found all these creative ways to bring the stories of people living with HIV in Edmonton in particular um, into spaces where people usually wouldn't engage in that conversation. And so I really started to see it as sort of this Trojan horse. I used I started to see Rivermage as this Trojan horse that if I just wanted to talk about these things, nobody would show up, but then I could charge some, I could charge people $150 and they will all show up for this fancy event in which there are really problematic um, themes that are being conveyed that they usually will not engage in. And I found that so fascinating, like how you could tell these stories in all these different ways and engage people who just would never engage in these sort of conversations and you would engage them um, because of that format. But since then, um, we ran a listening campaign. So from 2017 to 2019, we decided to listen to African Caribbean Black communities across the province to see how we could be more useful. And since then, the stories have changed now to center more Black identity um, in that, in the diversity of Black identities to, to uncover our experiences across the province, especially as relates to navigating the healthcare, health systems and the supportive systems. And we've done that in a number of different ways. Um, but I guess those will be the stories we've told over the years. Starts with people living with HIV and then deepens into this conversation around the intersections of um, Black identity and our experiences in the healthcare systems. There's two things I'd like to draw out of there. First, I'm wondering if you could just um, give us an idea of what you mean by intersections. It's not something that's come up in the class this term yet. Oh, okay. So when I talk about intersectionality, I'm saying that all of us are not just this one flat idea of what you first see when people, or what people first observe when they see you. So I am not just a woman. I am not just black. I am not just uh, um, heterosexual and in in my case there are multiple layers of who i am and how i identify and all these identity factors and this becomes very important when we're looking at complex problems like hiv because there are populations that get marginalized more and in canada the so-called priority populations happen to be uh, men who have sex with men indigenous uh, people and they say newcomers, but really when they say newcomers, it's code for black people. It's in particular code for African people. But the trouble with even um, just lumping all Africans together is within Africa, you have 54 sovereign states, depending who you're talking to. You have over 3000 ethnicities. You could have as much as 5,000 languages, depending on what you count. And so even just that continent, there's so much diversity in who's African. And then when you layer on all these other identity factors that then account for this concept of intersectionality, you're now looking at religion, you're looking at language, you're looking at um, ability, you're looking at neurodivergence, you're looking at... Um, you know, ling linguistics and what sort of language you speak, looking at sexuality, looking at gender, and gender is not just man and woman, gender is a whole bunch of things in between that. Um, and so these identity factors matter because when they are combined, 
there are these other there's this other concept i suppose of systems of oppression and how certain identity factors are more marginalized and it's not additive it's just a unique experience it's a unique experience to be a yoruba woman that's heterosexual speaks english and happens to be in Canada and has a whole bunch of other identity factors that I, I'm, I'm just not coming to me in this moment. That's a very unique position. And that comes with a very unique experience of Canadian life. I'm also wondering if you could just draw out a little bit more what a listening campaign is. So in community organizing, listening campaigns are a series of activities and practices to uncover what a community is sensing and needing or what their strengths are. And it just involves actually listening and discerning with community. Um, in our case, because we are a bunch of very random different people put together at the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Our listening campaign really prioritized listening. And so we just really wanted to understand where we had most of our influence. And we also wanted to understand how we could be more useful in our communities. And so very quickly, it, it became obvious to us that because of the way we had started in donating to African countries, and the number of African people that are in Ribbon Rouge, that the most logical place to start would be within African Caribbean Black communities, and also within artist communities. And so our listening campaign then featured a bunch of artists going around, <laughs> talking to a bunch of African Caribbean Black people and listening. And then it included researchers at some point and then it just involved community dialogues. And initially we wanted to see how we could be more useful in communities. That's really how we started without an agenda. And I would say that's something that's in common with the best listening campaigns. It's you don't have an ulterior motive or something you're trying to build consensus around. You really are authentically trying to listen for around the solution or listen around a a problem that you're sensing in the community. And so we went around going, okay, how can we be more useful? And because we're Ribbon Rouge and people kind of know us around HIV, these conversations just gravitated naturally around health. And so more and more people spoke about health, but it wasn't so much that they would speak about health, uh, about HIV, they would speak about HIV only as a symptom of all these other issues that they were experiencing in Canada. And so that became an interesting thing for us to actually delve into. And so that spurred a whole bunch of other changes that have now happened in our foundation. Um, but I think that's the best way I can describe our listening campaign, this sort of organic spread of people across the province listening in African Caribbean Black communities, listening to African Caribbean Black uh, leaders and members and just people to get a sense of how we could be, how, how we could be of greater service to our communities. Can I ask you what you mean by saying HIV is a symptom of something bigger? Definitely. So in, in listening, what what started to rise to the surface is you'd walk into a room and perhaps you think the conversation you're about to have is about because the person you're talking to is a person living with HIV. So perhaps you think that the thing that they're going to be talking about today is just how uncomfortable HIV is for them. Or what you're going to hear almost the entire time is how they were treated by the lab technician and how their mother treated them and how their pastor treated them. And you're gonna hear talk, them talk about stigma. And then you're gonna hear all the different layers of stigma if you really deeply listen. And I think that's another curious thing about listening is that I think a lot of us just, we think we're listening, but we're doing a lot of things that aren't listening. <laughs> and so, 
there's this idea about how you listen and communicate and the different levels of listening that actually allow for discernment. And the first level, you're just downloading, like kind of like what I'm doing right now, just downloading and <laughs> just talking as much as I can. Um, and then the next level is sort of debate. And as a pharmacist, I'm very familiar with this one where a patient comes in to talk to me and as they're talking to me, if I'm not careful, what I'm doing is I'm analyzing all the data I'm getting and I'm just thinking of what I'm going to say to them um, to make it all better. And so it's actually a conscious practice to, 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 to pause that internal feedback, to actually be in the moment with that person, to be in the moment with this patient, right? Then the next level is even more tricky. It's empathy where you have to suspend judgment, you have to suspend your beliefs, your opinions, and in that moment, put yourself in the other person's shoes. We all like to think we empathize, but it's, it, it's a humbling thing to do. And then the, the furthest out in listening is, now you're listening from a place of what, what does the future want? It's a generative thing. It's, beyond you and the person you're talking to now, what is calling out to you in the future? And it sounds like very woo-woo and very abstract, but it really is a thing. And so when you're back to this woman or this person you're listening to living with HIV, when they talk about stigma, you might hear different levels in stigma. You might hear that stigma is what she, this person perceives, but stigma is also enacted. But stigma is also in the systems that this person negotiates. So they go to the hospital and there's a red sheet for certain people and a blue sheet for certain people. Now, this institution doesn't know necessarily that this is stigma. But if everybody knows that the red sheet starts for, stands for something and the blue sheet stands for something else, you've institutionalized your stigma, right? And so in listening, what starts to become apparent is you will hear this person talk about discrimination. You will hear them talk about money. You hear them talk about poverty. You hear them talk about employment and education and the lack thereof sometimes. You would hear them talk about an immigration experience that might be very different from other races and nationalities and their immigration experience. And HIV suddenly starts to become the symptom of poverty, the symptom of differences in education, the symptom very often of discrimination. And when it comes to discrimination, even the outcomes are different. So a black person, um, a black uh, gender minority living with HIV, their experience of HIV is so completely different from a white heterosexual man living with HIV. Like it doesn't even come anywhere close in terms of the outcomes for health, the mental health outcomes, the um, risk or the odds of uh, addictions or injection drug use, um, the experience they have when they go to see their physician, um, they don't, it doesn't even come anywhere. The chances of incarceration, like it doesn't even come anywhere close in the lived experience, right? Um, and so that's what I mean. I mean that HIV is there, but the thing that really rocks this person's life every day and their world and makes increases the chance of contracting it, passing it on, and then also the things that make life difficult are so much more complex and so much bigger. And HIV just becomes the thing that signifies that all these problems are there. Those intersections. Yeah, those intersections again. Make that a very unique experience for each person. Yeah. 
um, thank you for sharing that. Um, that it's always good to think about that and to be reminded of those things, right? Because the narratives and the stories we hear are usually the dominant ones. And so it's important for us to remember there's so many other stories. So thank you for that. Speaking of which, you've had some great projects that have come out where you do showcase the stories of people who uh, don't necessarily make the front page of the newspapers or the ones that we hear on mass kind of media. So for example, you did a photo voice project. You also did something that I think is very curious, the Black History Creation Project, which seemed to have very pointed audience and a very intended, pointed is the wrong word, a very intended audience, yes. as well as Kinfest are three things that clearly have storytelling at the root of them. I'm wondering of those three things, for the sake of time, we'll try to see if we could just do one. Out of those three different projects, do any of them, um, are there, could you bring one to the front for us and maybe explain it a little bit more, thinking about everything we've talked about around intersectionality, storytelling, and then also that change-making process? I think the one that is, they, I really want to talk about is the, uh, uh, black history creation project because it just has a few different elements that i just I, i'm biased but i think it's really cool um so it's uh it happens in february and march uh currently at northwest but actually we like it so much that we're now developing a curriculum that's going to be a three credit um course um that would be taken that would you could take at northwest next academic year so september next year so what this thing was, was um, about four years ago, we're going into the fourth year in February uh, 2021, we, we, we brought storytellers into the class. And so the first year, the theme was origin stories. And so it was different storytellers. So for example, I had a Yoruba person in one of the classes that told the story of the place where the world began for Yoruba people. And I love that story because if you listen to this story, there's there's so much diversity and there's this one God that sometimes is a man and sometimes is a woman. So I'm like, oh, we have a trans God in Yoruba. Don't tell, most Yoruba people might not accept this, but I'm like, there's totally a transsexual, uh, transgender God in our um, origin story. But so, there was one storyteller that did that, but there was a storyteller that also told the story of uh, the Black settlers and Amber Valley and the significance of some of these places that a lot of us don't get to hear about. And what's really cool, I think, about that project is I find that every time people go to do Black History Month, they start from this place of slavery. And I, understand, I get why, why we do that because um, the civil rights movement was is major and it's important that we commemorate it. And at the same time, I wanted us to do some counter storytelling. Like what happens if we tell the counter narratives? What happens if we start from the place when we were empires? What happens if we start from the place where the world began? What happens if we tell those stories too, right? And so... I, I really love love that this particular project because of that, because it's our opportunity to tell our story in our way, in a counter-narrative to what is always told, in an empowering way, in a way that bridges between our differences. And the particular group we chose to tell these stories to were the anti-oppressive practice class, classes at Norquest. And so it was the people that want to become social workers, and the history of social work is rife with oppression. And so we really like that it's the pre-service providers before you become a nurse, before you become the social worker that causes this black person pain and grief, before you become the nurse that, you know, perpetuates oppression in the hospital with, with the different colors of, you know, papers. How about you listen to our stories and you listen to it from a place of, um, power. And so we had the storytellers, very diverse group of people will come in every year. So the first year was origin stories. Then the next year was 
black joy and it was black joy as resistance so it was this idea of mental health about talking about the grief and talking about the joy and talking about our joy as resistance and then the third year was allyship and what we would do is because you know arts can be can sound threatening to some people and these are social workers, potentially, and nurses. So we would say, oh, you're doing an expression. You're, you're going to make sense of the stories you're told in an expression. You have to express yourself. And so we would get these artists that would come in from the foundation and then facilitate um, a workshop where they, they had to have listened. And we also taught them how to listen. So we would practice the different ways to listen. And so they would listen to the storytellers, counter narrative, and then the artists would help them facilitate a process where they would create art. And then their art will end up in inclusion fusion, which happens um, the week of the 21st of March, which is the UN's declared week to end racism. And so we would then be able to put our counter stories that have been made sense of by these uh, students in this uh, anti-racism exhibition for a week. There's just so many things I love about this, the bridging, the ability of stories to then bridge across differences. So not everyone in those classes are Black. In fact, a lot of people in those classes are not Black. Um, and they are invited then to listen to us from a place of empathy and beyond deeply and to make sense of these stories and to hear these stories from a framing that is not the popular victimhood and like just um you know how to put it not the not the popular narratives that are put out there about black people um and at the same time real like we do capture the grief we do capture the pain and we capture also the parts that don't end up in mainstream media before um, we capture our legacies and our histories before slavery as well. Um, and so that's the Black History Creation Project. And I would say we don't yet have a measurement that these nurses are you know, less judgy or less discriminatory. <laughs> we don't have that yet. Um, but I would say that the students enjoy the process. The teachers find it to be, the instructors, instructors find it to be an effective way to bring across that message. And it's, I think something else I really love about it is it's not, it's not just the rational ways of knowing that are prioritized in education, where you just prioritize logic and ration, uh, rationality, but it's an emotional, it's a deeper emotional way of knowing that's embedded in that. And I think everything you do with arts has spirituality in it. I find it hard to separate spirit from the art. And so once you go into this place where you're invited to listen with empathy or to listen from the future, and then you're invited to then create your expressions, you are invited into a spiritual place. And I, I really like that that's in, embedded in that, in that um, program because it then, for probably very few times in their course, in their programs, they're invited to learn in a way that is not just rational. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of other things that they're learning there, right? Um, yeah. That's the Black History Creation Project. It's so incredible. I want to. I want to be a part of it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go to Norquest and sign up. Sign up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have so much. This was so amazing. Uh, it was so much more than I'd anticipated, which was our first conversation as well. Um, you're an incredibly impressive person with so many great ideas, and clearly have surrounded yourself with this energy and this energetic group of people who are carrying this forward. And for all the people who told you all those stories and continue to participate in Ribbon Rouge, I would like to thank you all. Me too. Oh my gosh. 
I am so thankful for all the volunteers, the support, the community members. Like, yeah, so thankful. Thank you, Marenica and Ribbon Rouge, for the work that you continue to do in the city. We encourage listeners to check out more of what Ribbon Rouge has done and is doing through the link on our website, which is a good reminder to let you know that you are listening to the sixth Humanity 101 class this term. And if you want to catch up or check out what we've been doing these last few months, you can find us at hum101 on air.ca, phone us at 587-709-5472, or email us at hum101 at uoberta.ca. And if you are online, check out some of the stories your fellow classmates and listeners have been sharing. We have one such story we'd like to share with you now. Jo shared her response to the I Am From activity by sending us a recorded voice memo from her phone. Where I Am From by Joe Neville. I am from the family farm. Goats milked and sheep shorn. Fish tanks in the wall. Dining table for 10. Windows in the sky. Black granite adorned the walls. Bedrooms as big as a house. Built of bricks and masonry blocks. House built to stand the test of time. A 21st century house built in the 1960s. I am from bananas and goat's milk. Rice and beans. Oranges from our own grove. Cheese was a treat. I am from words spoken by my parents. Dad said, Go to university to study what you are interested in, not for a career, but what you are passionate about. Trust, then verify. Talk your way out of a fight. Mom said, two ears to listen and one mouth to speak. Work not because you have to, but because you want to. Never give up. Learn all you can. I am from music. I am from the world, Beethoven to Mozart, Beatles to ACDC, Alan Jackson to Grand Ole Opry, from folk to traditional to eclectic, music is in me. I am from extreme family. Mom was the tallest of her family at five foot one. Dad was the shortest of 11 kids at six feet two. Dad had a big heart, literally, and figuratively. Mom was the matriarch. Smile as sweet as apple pie. She listened quietly, but reserved her decision till both sides heard. If the queen has a doppelganger, mom was it. I am from green jungle and orange groves. I am from hours long thunder and lightnings. I am from the loud howler monkeys in the treetops. I am from mono season. I am from the land of parrots of vivid colors. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Joe. We have updated our activities online and are excited to see how you engage with them. You can send us completed activities through phone, by email, or even by mail. Call for the details, 587-709-5472. Thank you to everyone who made this week's class happen. Thank you always to AG47 for the theme music and Jason Boris for the sound engineering. And thank you for tuning in. Next week, we start the first of a two-part class exploring music and storytelling. We have some incredible local musicians and their supporters coming on air over the next couple of weeks. So get ready to turn up the volume. See you next week, kind of, sort of, I guess. Have a good night.